Good evening. Both political parties hunkered down for a budget battle as the debt ceiling draws close. Celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta, the Supreme Court sets its sights on barring strikes, Biden on hate, and the unsettling question of who killed Dr. King. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. The top U.S. military officer, Army General Mark Milley, traveled to a site near the Ukraine-Poland border on Tuesday and talked with his Ukrainian counterpart face-to-face for the first time. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, met for a couple of hours with Ukraine's chief military officer, General Valery Zeluzhny, at an undisclosed location in southeastern Poland. The Biden administration insists no uniformed members of the U.S. military will enter Ukraine other than embassy security. The Pentagon said only a small group, Milley and six of his senior staffers, traveled by car to the meeting. And here at home, President Joe Biden marked the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. by asserting in his speech his administration is fulfilling the slain civil rights leader's dream of a better world. That's what I thought about yesterday at Ebenezer and that inflection point in history we're at. The path is clear. To go forward, we need to go together. So let's be guided by Dr. King's light and by the charge of scripture, which is Let us never grow weary in doing what is right, for if we do not give up, we will reap our harvest in due time. Well, we're going to reap the harvest. Let's remember who we are. We're the United States of America, and there is nothing beyond our capacity. Nothing, nothing, nothing if we do it together. So God bless you all. God bless the King family. Biden's speech was muted compared to last year's barn burner calling for legislation supporting voter rights. His focus was the economy, noticeably slowing as interest rates have risen, but also a threat by the Republican-controlled House of Representatives who say they'll shut down the government by refusing to raise the debt ceiling. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he wants to start talks before the cash crunch gets too close, but Biden has no plans to negotiate, demanding instead a clean vote to raise the debt limit. Biden said in his speech honoring King, Republicans are fiscally demented. The president added he'll not pass GOP legislation hindering the Democrats' agenda. Let me be clear. If any of these bills happen to reach my desk, I will veto them. Any of them. What I was saying during this last election cycle, this off-year election, this next thing, everybody said, you got to be making this up, Biden. Well, they're going to try to continue to try to cut Social Security or Medicare, which Americans have been paying into it with every single paycheck they've earned since they first got their first job when they were 16 years old. Speaker McCarthy says it's the president who has the problems. I think it's a sign of arrogance if you would say he wouldn't even discuss it. I mean, think about what the Democrats have done just in the four years. They've increased discretionary spending by 30%. When Republicans were in the majority for those eight years, discretionary spending didn't go up one dollar. And we know where we're sitting at, almost $32 trillion in debt. How could you do this to a future generation that in anything we do, why wouldn't we sit down and talk, especially with something as serious as debt, but as serious as a debt limit, why would you want to wait till the end? Here we are, we had Democrats in one power, um, one party power, 
They increased spending from $4 trillion to $7 trillion. They added $10 trillion of debt in the next 10 years. They wouldn't even produce a budget. So any household, if they were misspending, the first thing they'd do is set a budget. Meanwhile, today, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, rejected a GOP proposal to allow a government shutdown but make interest payments to bondholders, avoiding a government default. This so-called prioritization scheme makes Republicans' priorities pretty clear, crystal clear, if I may add. They want to put wealthy bondholders over ordinary Americans who want safe food, safe skies, safe communities, and secure borders. And it does not—it does nothing, absolutely nothing, to change the fact that failing to deal with the debt limit would cause economic catastrophe. This is just another attempt by congressional Republicans to force unpopular cuts on programs critical to seniors, the middle class, and working families. Congress needs to act and do so swiftly. There is no excuse for political brinksmanship when American jobs and economic safety is on the line here. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned last week that the federal government would run up against the federal debt ceiling this week. Meanwhile, Martin Luther King's youngest daughter, Reverend Bernice King, spoke at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where her father and grandfather were pastors. She says her father's message of equality remains a mandate to take action, adding her father was an inconvenient king who was beaten, stabbed, and eventually assassinated in retaliation for his message. We must begin the rapid shift, as my father said, from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society and must develop an overriding loyalty to all humanity. The inconvenient king, look at your neighbor and say the inconvenient king, reminds us that although the moral arc of the universe is long, it does still bend towards justice if we keep doing the righteous and just work. And if we choose community over chaos and coexistence over co-annihilation, then our dawn will break forth like the morning. Each of us, and I mean each of us, has a choice today. It starts with me, Bernice Albertine King. But it's about us choosing today to cultivate that beloved community mindset to transform unjust systems. Now that's the inconvenient king. And Senator Raphael Warnock, current pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church and recently re-elected in a tight race against a Trump Republican, says his success is a result of Martin Luther King's long arc of justice. I was born a year after Dr. King's death. Georgia was represented by two senators, both of whom made their contributions, but they were arch segregationists, both of them. And one of them said, we love the Negro in his place, and his place is at the back door. Well, because of what Dr. King did and because of what you did five times, I now sit in his seat. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so I just rise this morning to say to you, keep bending the arc. 
Keep standing up for voting rights. Keep standing up for health care. Keep standing up for our children. Keep bending the arc. And every now and then, God gives us a glimpse of glory. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock. We'll be hearing more on the life and death of Dr. Martin Luther King later in the newscast. Earlier this month, the United States Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that might gut the long-held right of unions to strike. The case, Glacier Northwest Incorporated versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters, involves a 2017 strike by 85 drivers of ready-mixed concrete trucks belonging to the company. The union is being sued for the cost of spoiled concrete in the trucks. The trucks themselves were not damaged. But an article in Truthout by Marjorie Cohen, a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild, titled, The Supreme Court is about to eviscerate the right to strike, Cohen argues the Supreme Court is looking for an opportunity to limit strikes. We have here a radical right-wing majority on the Supreme Court that favors corporations. Simple as that. And in two fairly recent decisions from the Supreme Court, the 2018 case of Janus versus AFME, where the right-wing Supreme Court said that public employees don't have to pay union dues to cover collective bargaining costs if they're not union members, even though they're getting benefit from those collective bargaining efforts. In 2021, the case of Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, the access rule, which says that employees the union has a right to access to the workers to do union organizing and have them sign cards for elections, and that means going on employer property. Again, the right-wing majority of the Supreme Court said no, that interferes with the employer's property rights. We have this pattern of anti-union decisions, and now we have an even more radical right-wing court. If they side with the employer in this case now pending before the Supreme Court, Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters, that will have a chilling effect on unions when they decide whether or not to strike, because it will become very expensive for them if they know they can be sued in state court for damages, they have to pay lawyers, as opposed to the federal labor law, which says that the National Labor Relations Board is the agency that makes these determinations. When those Teamsters got out of their trucks, why isn't that something that they should get uh, compensation for in the company? The union instructed the drivers to keep the drums running when they returned the truck so the cement wouldn't harden. And then he said every day Glacier deals with leftover concrete. The union's action didn't constitute intentional destruction of the property, and he said the Supreme Court has never determined that workers forfeited their legal rights merely because perishables spoil. Doesn't the state government sort of have to give in to the federal government? Yes, exactly. And the Congress has actually created the National Labor Relations Board through the National Labor Relations Act and says that that is where these determinations are made. Glacier Northwest went and sued the union in state court for tortious destruction of its property, seeking damages for the undelivered cement. But the Washington Supreme Court dismissed Glacier's lawsuit and ruled that the National Labor Relations Act preempts the state court lawsuits. What happens if the Supreme Court rules against the union in this? Organized labor could get very cautious. Unions could decide not to engage in strikes 
not file so many unfair labor practice cases, knowing the employer can find a friendly judge in state court to make it very expensive for the union to defend these cases. Organized labor can increase their strike activity and engage in campaigns in the community to get the public rallied behind their effort and also put pressure on the administration. The Biden administration that claims to be pro-labor filed an amicus brief in this case in support of neither party, and that's a quote. They wanted to have it both ways. They argued that the Washington Supreme Court shouldn't have dismissed Glacier's state court case, but then said once the NLRB makes a factual finding, then the state court should adopt them. And so the Biden administration said, send it back to the state court to consider the NLRB complaint. So they're really trying to cut it both ways. Of course, they did claim to be pro-labor, and they're not acting very pro-labor in this particular instance. Seems another blow to labor unions just when they're the most popular they've been, as you said, in half a century. The approval rating of unions is higher than it's been since 1965. 71% of the U.S. public supports labor unions, but we have this radical right-wing Supreme Court that is about to deal a severe blow to the right to strike, which is the most potent weapon workers have to obtain justice. Marjorie Cohen is a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Her article in Truth Out is titled, The Supreme Court is About to Eviscerate the Right to Strike. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In more national news, Republicans are pressuring President Biden, now that classified documents have been found at his home and former office, as Democrats say, there's a difference between what they claim is Biden's inadvertent misplacing of the documents, at least one has been said to have been marked top secret, and former President Donald Trump's allegedly purloining the numerous documents found at his Florida residence. On Tuesday, Speaker Kevin McCarthy upbraided the administration for treating Trump unfairly. At any time, they could have walked in and grabbed him. No, they had the FBI come and raid Mar-a-Lago. It was all public when it was taking place. They knew it was going. Now we have a current sitting president that had gone on 60 Minutes criticizing President Trump for what he's done. We had all the Democrats attacking. They even put a special counsel, prosecutor, to go after President Trump by this. Before the election, they found out President Biden had these documents, not under lock, a simple push of a button that could open a garage door that every American has and knows what happens when how people get robbed mainly by going through a garage door makes it quite easy. Prior to an election, they kept it secret. At no time did he get raided by the FBI. At no time did they come forward and say who was there could actually see these documents that are sitting in the garage behind a Corvette said it was, this is all we had, but we find time and time again. They put a special prosecutor only asking other people raise the issue. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, some of the Biden classified documents, apparently from his time as vice president, were discovered in his garage, famously next to his Corvette sports car, while others were discovered at his offices at the Penn Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken had been managing director. On Tuesday, Blinken said he had no knowledge of the secret documents. I was surprised to learn that there were any government records taken to the uh, the Penn Biden Center. I had no knowledge of it uh, at the time. Um, the White House, of course, has indicated that uh, the administration is cooperating fully with the review that the Justice Department has undertaken. And I, of course, would cooperate fully with, uh, with that review myself. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The White House press secretary said later in the day she has nothing more to add. I've also been very clear about being prudent from here. I was also being very clear about being consistent from here and not going beyond what is currently happening, right? I also said this was an ongoing review that was happening with the Department of Justice and, as we know, with the special counsel. I've been very consistent about that as well. And that's one of the reasons we are being very, very careful and very mindful and to not interfere here and to make sure, to make sure that the Department of Justice has their independence. And that's why we're going to continue to refer you to Department of Justice and refer you to the special counsel or my colleagues. About two dozen documents with classified markings have been found at Biden's home and office. Last week, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed special counsel to investigate the handling of the documents. Reportedly, more than 300 classified documents are discovered at Trump's residence. A special counsel was appointed in that case, too. And finally, In his speech commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, President Biden touted his summit last year to combat extremist violence. Last year, I also held the first-of-its-kind White House summit against hate-fueled violence that many of you call for and support it. Rev, thank you for that as well. Together, we're saying out loud, and we're saying it clearly, that in America, hate will not prevail. As my dad used to say, but it's not original to him, he'd say, Joey... Silence is complicity. Silence is complicity. We cannot remain silent, even if all we're doing is pointing it out and putting pressure on it to change. Silence is complicity. For example, with your help, I signed a law 100 years in the making to finally making lynching a federal hate crime. To silence, as your dad said, the crying voice of little Emmett Till, screaming from the rushes of the Mississippi. Folks, it takes too long. King was assassinated on April 4, 1968, officially by a lone gunman named James Earl Ray, who was captured in London and eventually died in prison. But in this report, lawyer William Pepper, who represented the King family, says there was a conspiracy to kill King. January 15th marked what would have been Martin Luther King's 90th birthday, and for many Americans, the day is a time to reflect on his legacy and to hope for advances in racial equality yet to come. Yet the iconic civil rights leader's memory is also linked to his assassination by a single gunshot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968. An assassination once thought settled with the arrest, conviction, escape, and rearrest of his alleged killer, James Earl Ray. Ray died in prison in 1998. After confessing to the crime and being sentenced to life, he recanted and maintained until his death that he was a pawn and not an assassin. It may not have been an important statement, but for the fact that members of the King family came to agree that someone else had killed Martin Luther King Jr. An attorney and author who has kept Ray's claim alive is William Pepper, who says Ray was not only innocent, but the pawn of then-FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. I'm an international human rights attorney. I represented the uh, the King family. I've been close, was close to Martin King the last year of his life. I convened the uh, the seminar on international human rights at Oxford University. Written three books on the King case. The final book, The Plot to Kill King, revealed the truth about how Martin King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I think he this birthday he would have been 90, almost a century after his birth, uh, half a century after his uh, murder. Still, you feel that this case has uh, not been closed. Why is that? Well, the case was closed, but the plot to kill King closes the case. It establishes how he was killed with corroboration and how he, how he was assassinated. James Earl Ray, of course, was originally coerced into, into, uh, into pleading guilty, as died in 1998. We held a, I represent the King family in a 30-day, 70-witness trial in 1999, which pretty much cleared Ray and implicated the government and agents of the government of the United States, state of Tennessee, city of Memphis. That was done in 99. But the final truth was not able to come out until 19, till 2016, because I couldn't reveal a lot of information we had for fear that witnesses would be killed. Who would have done this killing? Who would have killed the witnesses? The same forces that killed Martin King. <laughs> the United States government was determined to get to get rid of him, and they 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 were successful. I, I detail it, where the money came from, and how Hoover sent Clyde Tolson in with money, and and how they organized the Dixie Mafia and what went on. So it was, uh, it's it's a pretty clear picture of the involvement of the, in the assassination of the government of the United States. And in terms of this particular killing, the involvement of uh, of Hoover's office and uh, uh, Clyde Tolson as the go-between. Who was Clyde Tolson? Clyde Tolson was was Hoover's number two. He was his lover and his deputy director, and he was his trusted errand boy for tasks like this. What did you discover at the beginning, and what new information did you finally add to this case? Basically, what happened was that the hit was put on Martin in 19... It was finally organized in 1967. They arranged for James Earl Ray to be profiled and then escape from prison, and then and then under control uh, throughout his uh, the time that he was being used as a setup. Martin was induced to come into Memphis because of the sanitation workers' strike and the death of two sanitation workers. He was put up at the Lorraine Motel, which backed onto a brushy area. He stayed in room 306, where he never stayed before, despite the fact that Abernathy said that had always been their room. It had never been their room. He had never stayed there overnight. He used to meet with community groups there. That was all. He was in there, and he was set up as a target uh, in room 306. He was to go to go out to dinner that night. Came out on the balcony. A a the best shot in the Memphis Police Department, Frank Strauser, was the designated shooter. We have witnesses that showed him practicing all day with a special rifle at the rifle range. But it, it was given to him. He left at three o'clock to go down and to meet with his spotter, who was Lieutenant Earl Clark. And the two of them went out in the in the bushes in the bush area before six o'clock, accompanied by Lloyd Jowers, who owned Jim's Grill, which was the bar that backed onto the the bush area. They waited for. King to come out on the uh, on the balcony. When he came out on the balcony, he was shot a single shot by Strauser, hit in the right lower right part of his of his head, and the bullet went down and nicked the spine, and he, he was unconscious. 
He was then taken to St. Joseph's Hospital. They were working on him in the emergency room when the head of neurosurgery, Dr. Breen Bland, came in and told them all to get out and let that nigger die. Um, as the <clears throat> emergency room team f filed out the last one leaving was Lula Mae Shelby. And she heard the Breen Bland and the two men in suits who were with him gather, <clears throat> gather up spit in their throats and then had caught her attention as she was at the door. She turned, saw them spit on, on the on the body of King who was on a catheter, and with 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 catheters in his in his body. Then she saw a Bland pull the catheters out and take the cushion, the pillow, from under his head, put it over his his head, and suffocate him to death. And that was how Martin King was actually. Was actually killed. He might have died from the bullet wound, but uh, he was still alive, and they weren't taking any chances. She saw that. The next morning, when she went home, she called her family together. She told them what she had seen. Said she didn't know why they had to kill him. And years later, forty odd years later, her one of her sons was at that meeting, now uh, blind and diabetic came under oath and told that whole story. Now that's only one account, but we had another account of this, the youngest son of the Dixie Mafia family who were involved in organizing things on the ground. And he sat in on a meeting. Breen Bland was, his, was the family's personal physician. He sat in on a meeting between Bland and his elder brother. And uh, Bland, he heard Bland say, if the bullet doesn't kill him, be sure you get him to St. Joseph's, where uh, we'll make sure he doesn't he doesn't leave there alive. So the, those are two separate independent accounts of what happened in terms of the assassination. But as far as we're concerned, and, and I go into considerable detail in the book, that is how Martin King ultimately was killed. William Pepper is an attorney and author of An Act of State, The Plot to Kill King, The Truth Behind the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and Orders to Kill, The Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King. And that's the news for Tuesday, January 17, 2023. The news produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>